we are glad that you are here wherever you are in your journey of life and faith. We are excited to have you with us. We are looking at a book called the book of Ephesians, and we are finishing the first chapter today. And so uh, this is the part of our service where we reflect upon a passage of Scripture. And so we are now going to have it read for us from Ephesians chapter 1. Cedric. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the, Lord of our Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of your glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having your eyes and your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in, the age, in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church, what it, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I uh, have mentioned to you in a, a past sermon that I am neither a camper or the son of a camper, but I did try camping once. I was in grade eight, and I was um, hoping to get in with the cool kids in my high school, and so I was hanging out with a couple of them who uh, we liked each other, and, he sa- and I said, I, I like your friends. I'd love to kind of hang out, and they said, well, you should come camping with us and really get to know the guys, and I said, that sounds like a great idea, and uh, I said, well, how do I do it? How do I sign up? He said, well, this is one thing you got to do is you got to sign up for the Boy Scouts, because it's a Boy Scout camping trip. I said, Boy Scouts? The cool kids go to Boy Scouts? Are you kidding me? Probably a lot of you haven't even heard of the Boy Scouts, but I have. Their motto is uh, be prepared or always prepared. But he convinced me to do it. So I signed up for the Boy Scouts one week, and two weeks later I was on this camping trip. But I didn't know much about Boy Scout camping trips. This was a massive portage, multi-day camping trip filled with making your own lean-tos and creating your own, yeah, bannock and all this stuff. It was like intense wilderness skills day. So I showed up completely unprepared, and I couldn't believe the amount of gear I was expected to have and the amount of gear that was spread out as we were packing the cars. And there were not only tents and canoes and sleeping bags and clothes, but much, much more. There was a pile of machetes on the ground, and I thought, are we going to war? Oh, no, no, this is to cut our own lean-tos because we don't have enough tents, and you'll probably sleep in a lean-to since it's your first time. Great. And then I, there's another pile here, and it's all kinds of medical supplies. I said, what's all the medical supplies for? And they said, well, uh, you know, just, just for potential injuries. And I said, well, what's all this stuff? I see some bug spray and some other stuff. They said, that's for bears. And I went, wait a minute. Bears? We have bears? And he said, well, not usually. <laughs> I said, but possibly? He said, yes, possibly. I said, so we need all this gear? He said, well, just in case. We are the Boy Scouts after all. We're always prepared, just in case. As we continue 
our series in the book of Ephesians, we have a letter written to be circulated in many churches with no specific problem to be solved, but that scholars think was meant to be an inoculation vaccine for all the churches against potential viruses that may come into the church. This is a just-in-case kind of letter written to help the church prepare for and be equipped to endure certain temptations, struggles, and afflictions. We've just completed Paul's matchless, soaring song of praise to the three members of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how they intersected in our redemption as Paul marvels at their respective roles. The Father architected our redemption. The Father sent His Son who accomplished our redemption. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit who applies it to our lives by allowing us to have faith in Christ. Architect, accomplish, apply. This is the threefold work of the Trinity in our salvation. It's beautiful. And now Paul gives a threefold prayer to equip these Christians who are the beneficiaries of this threefold work of God, threefold prayer that God thinks we will need for the journey of faith that we have begun. So if you are not a Christian, we invite you in to hear about what the Christian life may look like as it unfolds. If you are a Christian, these are three things we need to remember, three things we need to refresh ourselves in, three things we need to embed into the depths of our being, our heart, our soul, and our desires. Now, these are Christians he's talking to. They, they have faith in Jesus that he rejoices in at the beginning of this. See verse 15, I rejoice in your love and your faith. So you may be a Christian, but Paul's saying you still need this foundational thing. And so Paul prays for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and mine, that we may see three things that will equip us just in case. Paul says this is available to all Christians who ask the Holy Spirit for it. It's available, but apparently not automatic. So we should pray for these things. We should meditate upon these things, and we should work these things into our soul, our mind, our wills, and the depths of our hearts. These three truths that He prays for us to really appropriate, understand, embed deeply into our being will, I believe, help grow three virtues, the three cardinal virtues that Paul spells out in the New Testament. You've heard of them, faith, hope, and love. And in these three, this threefold prayer, we see these three virtues being cultivated. Firstly, Paul prays for us to understand this, the future God has for us. Secondly, the treasure God sees in us. And thirdly, the power God gives to us. The future God has for us, the treasure God sees in us, the power God gives to us. The future God has for us. This should grow our hope. The treasure God sees in us as His people. This should grow our love. And the power God gives to us, this should grow our faith. Firstly, the future God has for us. He says that we should be given a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And He says this, have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know Firstly, what is the hope to which He has called you? Paul says something quite simple here. You may know the hope to which God has called you. Paul is saying every Christian 
who has believed in Jesus has a hope that they have been called to. The level of possession that you have is complete. The level of your understanding of what you have is incomplete, and he wants you to deepen it. The greatness of what we possess is the prayer that, God, that Paul prays for us. So now this word hope is an interesting term for several reasons. If you're at all culturally current, you know that we're having cultural conversations about where we should go. And in our culture, what I've found is this. We don't look to the future to help us figure out what we should presently do. Present conduct is not driven by the future that is before us. It's driven by the past that is behind us. In our culture today, we understand ourselves and respond as individuals and as tribes to what has come before. Progressives in our culture, for example, begin and frame almost all discussions of culture and cultural change with a look at the past. Past injustices, past oppressions, past power dynamics, social, economic, and political justice is framed primarily on redressing past injustices, oppressions, and power imbalances. And progressing, there's the word progressive, or moving on from the past. I ask, I have significant conversations with progressives weekly, and what I generally get is a multiplicity of answers of where they think we should go, but it's almost always expressed in terms of the past. I can summarize the multiplicity of answers with one commonality. They all want us to look less like the past. Conservatives, on the other hand, tend to take an opposite approach to the past. They tend to see it through rosier glasses. They tend to see things that are beautiful and worth retaining from the past. So they want to conserve, there's the word conservative, or preserve major elements of the past more than disrupt or destroy it. When I ask conservatives what they want the future to be, there's a multiplicity of answers, but they have this commonality. They want the future to look more like the past. We see them as at complete odds with each other in our culture, and in truth they are, but they have this in common. They look to the past to shape their understanding of what should be done in the present. But what if... We are called to look to the future. What if it is the future that is meant to shape and invade the present, not the past? Now, if you're an average Toronto resident, you would object to this and you'd say, no, that would be foolish because you can't know the future. The future is unknown. We can only look to the past because that is what we know. We have no idea what the future holds. There's no certainty. Maybe there's hope there and maybe there isn't. So we're going to shape our present by looking at the past because we have no real hope in the future. It's too uncertain. Two things, therefore, describe our present culture. We're a culture trying to live and move towards the future, but we have no clear goal in mind and no real hope in hand. For all of our modern technology, all of our modern learning and advancement, are we really that different from the day that Paul wrote this? Here is a slogan that was popular in the Roman culture of the day of Paul when, Ephesus, when this letter was written. I was not. I was. I am not. I don't care. Listen to the cynical, nihilistic sentiment and ask yourself the question, is that not pretty close to where a lot of us are? I was not. 
And then I was. I am not. I don't care. See, we have no hope. No hope that the future will be better than the past. No certainty of it. Hope in our definition is foolish. That's the culture. But the gospel says this. The gospel says, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) There is a hope. It is certain. It is known. And it is glorious. We know that it is certain because a man named Jesus rose from the dead and proved he was God in history. He really is who he said he was. And he is the one who told us about the future. He told us he was going to leave this earth, ascend to his Father, which he did, into the heavenly realms, sit at his right hand and reign, and then come back again and bring a glorious future to us. The end of this passage actually tells us exactly that. It says Jesus is presently reigning, and he will come back to consummate his victory. It says he has put all things under his feet and given him, Jesus, his head over all things to the church, which is his body, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You see, Jesus is there reigning so that we can be certain that the one who reigns can make effective what he promises. And what does he promise? Well, in the book of Revelation, it tells us. John says, I saw in a vision that Jesus gave him, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with us, and he will dwell with us, and we will be his people. God himself will be with us as our God, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying. Or pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Excuse me. This is part of the hope. This is the hope. This is what John saw. And at the center of this, It's not only a glorious new existence with no more pain or crying. But at the center of the center of this, he says, God will be with us. He will dwell with us. We will be his people. And God himself will be with us as our God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says it slightly differently and more poetically. Now we see and is in a mirror dimly. Then we shall see face to face. Men and women, The most beautiful thing that you have in your mind, on your bucket list, I don't know what it is, the most beautiful part of the earth that you have seen, either on Instagram or in person, put it in your mind right now. The place that you still want to see, the most breathtaking place, think about it now. I don't know where it is for you. But that place, that picture that is in your mind is like a garbage dump compared to the new creation that God is going to bring. It doesn't even compare. And when you're in the new creation, if you are, and you look at the new creation, all the beauty of nature and humanity and the city and the mountains and the animals gathering with no tension and no conflict, they will pale in comparison to when you look at God himself. He will be radiant, so radiant. 
The beauty of his creation will be but a pale reflection of the beauty that is him. And your heart and your soul will be so full. That is the hope that you have. And it is certain if you are a Christian. What does it mean for us? It means this, firstly, when life turns tough, dark, and ugly, how do you respond? If you have this hope, it gives you the resilience to endure. When the culture turns hostile or indifferent, how do you feel tempted to respond? If you have this hope, it should not rock you but give you courage to continue to bear witness. When your own sin torments you, it should not shock you or shame you or lead you to despair. This hope will humble you but allow you to keep going. We have a culture that's easily derailed. We are breeding a culture that has little endurance because we've lost our ability to endure difficulty, hostility, or our own failures. But this kind of hope gives you back that resilience. Listen to Romans chapter 5. In five, Romans 5 verse 3, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, wrote Paul the apostle to the Roman church, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope will not put us to shame. See, it's certain. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through His Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, God's hope will not put you to shame. Tough times need not derail you. Hostility about your faith need not rock you. Sin need not torment you. You can be a resilient people. And we are called to be so. It says in Colossians, in a parallel passage to this one, Paul writes, From the day we heard about your faith, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. You hear the parallels? Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The greatness of the hope to which you have been called will grow the greatness of your endurance and patience with joy if you let it. I was uh, <clears throat> on social media and I, I got this little video of this big guy with a, well, not so big guy, but he had a really big beard so he caught my attention. So I thought I'd, I'd hit and listen to the real. Turns out he's a scholar and a writer, theologian also a father. He was reporting in the video about going to the gym the day before and seeing all these young guys working out who were exactly the same age as his son who died a few months earlier, suddenly and tragically. He was sad, he was missing his son, and he was reflecting on what had happened. And then he said these words. As a Christian, though, I'm a man of hope. 
And I don't mean hope in the way we ordinarily use that word, like when we say, I hope the weather improves, or I hope that things get better at work. No, that's a mere wish. A Christian to hope, for a Christian to hope in the Lord is to hope in my reunion with my son. It is a confident expectation that I am waiting for the Lord to act on my behalf because he is a promise-keeping God. It is not a mere wish. It is a confident expectation in the God who made his promises to us. We wait on him. We look for him to act, and we trust that he will because he is good and gracious, and he is our Father. That is the kind of resilience that this hope that God has called you to possess gives you. May we see the future God has for us in all of its truth and glory and certainty, and may we let it build hope that it creates resilience. Secondly, the treasure God sees in us. The treasure God sees in us. The next line down for his prayers is, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Not to the saints, in the saints. If you were here last couple of weeks, you would have heard that in chapter 1, Tarek last week described the inheritance that we are given by God, this redemption from sin, freedom from guilt, salvation and deliverance from evil forces. What an inheritance we have, and we can be assured it's ours. But this is not that. Here the inheritance is not ours. It's God's. Last week the inheritance was for us. This week the inheritance is us. You are God's inheritance if you are a Christian. This is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible to me, that, that we are the long-treasured inheritance of God Himself. It says, His glorious inheritance. I'm going to pick two words here, His. <laughs> We're His inheritance. Think about it for a moment. The God who possessed all things, the God who stood in the magnificence of His triune being who had no needs, who existed in pure love between the three members of the Godhead before all eternity. This God needing nothing, this God created us not because He needed us, but because out of the abundance of His love He wanted to share with us His eternal and infinite joy and have it come to us as a gift. We're His inheritance. We're what He has created us for, to be His inheritance. Second, it says glorious. The joy of doing this communion, let me get to the edge of heresy here, was His blessed hope. Our blessed hope, to see Him face to face, is His glorious inheritance, to have us see Him face to face. The joy that He will see in us is what His heart has been longing to see fulfilled and why He has shaped all of history. The joy of uniting us with Him is something that He planned all of history around, that He may experience it with us and we may experience it with Him. What love does God have? There is nothing in the creation or history of the world that brings God more pure, unallied joy other than hanging out with Himself and enjoying His own beauty is this reunion of us with Him. We are glorious to Him. 
men and women, if God treasures us that much, how ought we to treat each other? We should treasure what God treasures. We should treasure Him, and we should treasure His bride. His bride is what He sent His Son to die for. His bride is what He sent His Spirit into our hearts to create. His bride is His joy and the consummation of His redemptive mission. Treasure His bride. Treasure it in two ways. Firstly, treasure the head of the bride, Jesus Christ himself. It says he's been put as head. He is the one who died for you. He is the one who purchased you. He is the one who was guilty for you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are his treasure because his son became his guilt offering. Glory in the head, Jesus, and then treasure each other. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Particularly, he's talking about amongst the community of faith. Let each of you look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be grasped, but he emptied himself by becoming in the form of a servant being born in the likeness of humans and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To treasure, according to Philippians 2, is to serve. Do you want to treasure each other? Serve each other. Those of you who've known me a long time know where this is going. It's going upstairs after the service. We're called to serve each other. Galatians 5, 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for your selfish desires, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter 4, 10, As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So I'm here to tell you, God expects you to serve Him and each other. Period. This isn't legalism. The expectation of you serving isn't from me. I don't care how you serve God's people. I don't care when you serve God's people. I care that you obey God who calls you to serve God's people. You are expected to serve. It's not legalism, it's gospel. It's the expectation of a child to be part of the family. It's the expectation of a member of a body not to quit. Like if one of my legs just decided it's not, not going to cooperate with the rest of my body, it would be a tough go. You know, I'd I just be kind of, you know, like it's a tough go if a major part of my body just quits on me. And I'm 60, it's starting to happen. So, I mean, this is real life experience. We're members. Do we need you? Yes, a couple things I hear about People from Grace is, in my old church, I was expected to serve too often. As Kingsley said very well, if all of us are serving, none of us have to serve too often. See? That's how you solve it. We don't want you to serve too often. We want you to love your service. I was talking to someone out in 
um, the foyer who does greeting, and that person would serve every week if we let her, because she just loves you. The only reason she wouldn't want to do it is so she could come in and be part of worship in the sermon, because she loves that too. That's a beautiful heart of service. This treasure God has in His inheritance should lead to the treasuring of His inheritance, the bride, by His kids. The future God has for us should give us hope, leading to resilience. The treasure God sees in us should lead to love and treasuring of each other. Finally, the power God gives to us should produce faith. It says, and this is the longest part of the passage, what, what is His immeasurable greatness, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Now, this is the longest section of the passage. It actually goes on farther. But it says that God has immeasurable power pointed in our direction. The Greek word for immeasurable is properly translated. It means immeasurable. It means really hard to measure because it's so abounding. It's to surpass a mark by a shocking margin, extraordinary. So, for example, 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's how this word was translated there. That's, again, that forward tilt, that hope-filled, future-driven view of our life, beyond all comparison. If, so, Paul gives us an example here, an example named Jesus. The immeasurable power that raised Jesus from the dead, raised from death itself. How powerful is that? Do we have a power that we know of in our natural world, in our scientific technological world? Do we have the power yet to raise people from the dead? No, we have the power to kill millions of people in an instant. But we have not the power to raise one person from the dead at all. That's extraordinary power. That's the power that God has for us. Death was the trump card of the evil forces in the heavenly places. So this whole picture of Jesus rising from the dead isn't just rising from material death and and sort of naturalistic inevitability. It's Jesus conquering the evil forces that like to use death as a weapon of leverage. It's a victory in the heavenly realms, being seated at the right hand of God, being seated in a royal place. The right hand of God was the place of authority. The original reader would know that the king, because he had so many ceremonial functions, or she had so many ceremonial functions, they would put someone at their right hand who did the day-to-day duties of the emperor or the queen or the king, and that person had all the authority. What they said She said or he said. It was the same level of authority. And Paul says Jesus has been seated there. Head over all things. Now, you need to remember that Paul builds up on previous truths when he's making arguments, like a lawyer might. So Paul here is assuming that you remember what he had written earlier. In chapter 1, he said this time after time after time. When he gave us the song of the Trinity and what they did in saving us, he kept saying, in him 
we have this. In him we have redemption from we have redemption. In him we have the forgiveness of sins. So what Paul is assuming you know here when you read this is that everything I'm talking about Jesus, in him I'm talking about you. So Jesus was raised. You are raised. Jesus was seated at God's right hand, spiritually united to Christ. You are right now seated at God's right hand. Spiritually, you right now are united with him as he reigns over all things. Okay, now just put yourself there. Put yourself in the heavenly places, seated with Jesus at the right hand, having risen from death. Do you know what that means? What it means is this. You have a power that you've hardly imagined. You have the power over past sins and trauma not to let them define you, but to be free from their traumatizing power. It may be difficult. I've experienced trauma, and it can get deep, but not so deep that the power of God can't help free you. You have the power over present sinful temptations. You can stop yourself from those addictive temptations you have. You can stop yourself. Every temptation and addictive kind of behavior I had, I know Christians who have gone before me and freed themselves from it and worse. You have power over hostile forces against you to be his witnesses, and you have power over the temptation to be divided. We have power, men and women, to be far more beautiful as a community of faith for a lost and dying city than we imagine because we have power as individuals because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Where's the Holy Spirit now if you're a Christian? That same Spirit is in you. Immeasurable power. Know. Know the future God has for you. No. Know the treasure God sees in you. No. Know the power God has given to you. Be the kind of person who lives in these three glorious realities. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and for your grace. May this be true of us just in case when the temptations and afflictions, when the hostility or indifference of our friends and our family members and our culture, when our own sin, when any of these threaten to derail us, may these truths come and encourage us and strengthen us, humble us, but lift our heads, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I think we have time for a question or two. So one question here is a question for clarification. Um, It says, how do we know that the passage means we are God's inheritance? It seems like it could be saying we uh, we would know or experience his glorious inheritance. They say something he passes into us like heirs. Thank you. If you can clarify that one part. How do we know that? The passage means we are God's inheritance. So just that one part. Uh, It's just uh, linguistic and exegetical study. The vast majority of scholars have looked fairly carefully in the, the Greek language 
was shocking enough that it took a while for scholars to even, I think, agree to this, but the consensus has emerged that syntactically and grammatically, we are God's inheritance. Yeah. Uh, maybe one more? Yeah. Okay. Uh, how does one know if the hope they have is from God or that they, uh, they are waiting on God for something grounded in their own selfish desires? In other words, how do we know if the hope we have is God-given or the hope we have for ourselves? Yes. Thank you. That's a great question. The hope that I have been describing is the hope that is described in the Bible. It is your eternal hope. It is the hope of Jesus returning. It is the hope of you being made in communion with him. It's not the hope that you get that next job or or get married to that woman or guy or whatever it is that you're presently hoping. So the blessed hope that we're talking about is not meant to be your present hope in your temporal circumstances. It's far deeper and more beautiful and more enduring and more eternal than that. I can't tell you how to know whether your desire for the next promotion or your desire for whatever that is temporally in this world is God's or not. There's a a long, there's kind of a multivalent process of discernment that I would use, for example, um, I don't know if I'm answering it, but, uh, you know, are you gifted for that? Do you have an opportunity to do that? Would you flourish in that? Would you be a good ambassador for the love of Christ and word and deed in that? Those are some of the so those are some of the, da- the data points that we get people to talk through when they have those kinds of questions. Also, what is your community of faith? The wise people around you think about that future opportunity. I remember once I was just stone cold in love with this girl for four years, and the guy who ended up being the best man at my wedding finally sat me down, and he said, look, I know you think she's God's call for you, but it's been four years, and she, she's liked you for a week should be a clue. And I said, well, I know, it's just really hard to get over her. He said, let me tell you this. You're not yourself when you're with her. About four weeks later, after I finally listened to him, I went on a conference and met my wife. My community of faith helped me to see what I needed to see. Thank you. All right, I'm going to have a song of response. So let me pray as the worship team comes back up. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness that you have given us in Jesus and the goodness of the hope that we have for our future. Let that future invade our present in the way that we understand your community. Let us treasure our community and see them as the beautiful, eternal, glorious sons and daughters of God that you have made us and let us treat each other that way. Let us find in the future of peace and harmony and grace a way to speak to the city about how it should flourish. Let us find in the future a way of communing with you that should dictate our present conduct towards you. May we seek you and be satisfied in you in the ways that the future indicates we will. And may we, doing that, experience your immeasurable power to be the kind of community that in word and deed not only loves each other, but bears witness to our city and becomes a glorious light in a dark place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.